Well, welcome. If you are new with this, my name is Andrew Conrad. Look forward to meeting you. And uh, have you ever bitten into a mealy apple that's just mushy? And it's not crisp? And it's no good? Yeah, those are disgusting. Today we come to the last church of the seven in the book of Revelation and we're told that Christ wants to vomit it out of his mouth. Revelation 3, verse 14 and following. Hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love... I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will bless the reading of your holy word, and I pray that you will use me to help explain this today, that we might understand it, and that we would be able to apply it to our lives. Lord, I pray that you would use it to shape in us what you want us to be, and I pray that we would have fellowship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So have you ever had that experience where you thought you knew something, you thought, oh yeah, I got this, and then you found out you didn't? You know, like, um, I thought we were all good, but, but then your boyfriend broke up with you. Or, I, I thought we were all good, but then your boss fired you. Or, I, I thought I was healthy, but the doctor said I have cancer. Or maybe you've worked to accommodate and with your friends and make compromises to make sure you have a good group of friends only to not be invited to their party. When a church becomes conceited and complacent, thinking that they got a good life, maybe even they have the good life bumper stickers. But Jesus says, you make me want to throw up. What? What is that about? What's going on? I mean, that'll get your attention, right? When you have become self-deceived, Jesus in this text here diagnoses the conditions of that and then provides the cure. So I want us to look at those two things today. How Jesus diagnoses the conditions and then delivers the cure. Okay, so first, some signs of critical condition. A first sign of critical condition is that you think you have fellowship with Jesus. But what verse 16 told us clearly is that, nope, you're lukewarm, and Jesus says, I don't want to eat with you. It's gross. And makes him want to vomit. 
You may have heard this explained in various ways um, that you need to be hot for Jesus and on fire with Jesus and, and maybe you're cold um, but, and being cold and like distant from God and not even caring or dead, but just don't be lukewarm. I don't think that's what the text is saying. I don't think it does justice to the rest of the Bible because nowhere else in the Bible do we see this idea that Jesus would just prefer people to be cold, lifeless, and dead. He wants people to be saved and to know him. So I think it means something different than that. And there's lots of theories about what it may mean and water that flows in or out of the town. I, I don't particularly think those satisfy the text either. But if I guess I had to summarize it, I would say it is this. Um, that the Bible um, tells us that God wants to have fellowship with us. And he wants people to believe in him. And it seems the point here is that when people would have dinner parties together... They would often serve wine, and when they served the wine, they would not serve it at room temperature, lukewarm. They would serve it either hot, like a mulled wine in the winter, or they would serve it somewhat cold, using maybe ice or snow from the mountains in the region to cool their water and even pour, or get cold water and pour it into a, um, a bowl with the wine and mix it in that way. And so that way it was refreshing. It was either cool or it was hot. But room temperature wine meant nobody put any effort into the dinner party and just, here's what you got. And it seems like that's probably likely, or even if it wasn't wine, it would be the water. The same thing, there's no effort in this fellowship thinking, oh, here you go, we've got this fellowship, but not really. It's just served at room temperature, making no effort for their guests. And what Jesus is saying is, he doesn't want a lukewarm, tasteless offering. He has, it, that has no taste, no flavor, no value, and it makes him sick. He is saying that we should have fellowship together and that fellowship should be real, it should be good, it should be genuine, it should be rich and full and, and real. And we'll come back to that later as to why I think that. But, um, but for now, just note that I think that's what it's saying. Is you, you might think you have fellowship with Jesus, but Jesus is telling these people they don't have that fellowship or they're in critical condition of losing that fellowship. The second thing, uh, a, a sign of con uh, critical condition is that you think you're self-sufficient because you have money. In verse 17, it literally says, we have no need of anything. He says, you say you're rich and you say you have no need, but you're not. You're poor, wretched, and pitiable. And Jesus is saying, you don't live up to it. And you might be thinking, no, no, I do. I, I got a pretty good life. I put a little money in the plate at church, and I live in God's country. It's my mashup of country songs for you. When you trust in your self-sufficiency, you think you have made yourself when you trust in your self-sufficiency, you may not be generous toward others because you've got what you made. When you trust in your self-sufficiency, you forget that it is God who has blessed you and provided the very conditions of the environment in which you are able to work and make money and have a job. And when you are self-sufficient, you certainly don't feel a need for Jesus to be your daily bread, as Jesus taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, help me to trust in you that you are enough for me, right? When you're self-sufficient, you are not relying on Jesus. And Jesus says you're poor and you're naked. You've been caught without your clothes on, like the emperor, believing that he's got these beautiful new clothes, but really they're not. He's been told they're invisible, and everybody else can see through it and knows he's naked. And Jesus is saying you are so self-deceived that you think you're good, but you're actually walking around naked and vulnerable and bare. 
He knows the real you, which leads to the third critical condition or the third sign of a critical condition, and that is that you think you have a clear vision of God in religious life. It's what we're told in verse 17, and Jesus says you're actually blind. Again, pointing to self-deceit. You think everything's good, but you have so deceived yourself that it's not. It's not good. How could they have missed it? How could they have missed it? Well, by using each of these signs, these critical signs, what Jesus is doing is he is communicating something about his church. But what is that? We need to understand that if we are to really understand the message of what's going on as Jesus uses these metaphors to describe this critical condition that they have. What is that critical condition? There's no mention in these verses that we read, like there is in most of the other uh, letters to this other six churches. There's no mention of any opposition from Jews or any local, local uh, pagan religions opposing them. There's no great suggestion of sexual immorality and all the different things that they've done worshiping other gods. So we're not exactly sure what it is that they did, but it's pretty apparent because there was a huge Jewish community there and Gentiles and persecution was common in the time in the area that they're not facing any of that. It's pretty clear that whatever they're doing is not much. They're either accommodating the culture in every way, oh, we're just like you, or they're isolating and hiding from it and running away. But what they are not doing is they are not making trouble. They are not making claims about Christ, and therefore they are not making any disciples. And he's saying, you think you're a follower of me, but you don't have any signs of life. The simplest way to put this is the people are fat and happy. Life is good. There's no dire need of anything. I kind of like Jesus, but I don't want to cause any disagreement. I'll just keep it to myself. And Jesus is saying, that's not what it is to be a follower of me. Jesus never asked you to keep your faith to yourself. He commanded us to spread the name, his name, and the good news about him to others. It doesn't mean you have to be a jerk about doing it. But it does mean you got to do it in some way. You got to be involved in that somehow with your church, with the community of people doing it. And so it raises the question, how do we approach our society and our culture? Do we accommodate or do we isolate, right? Accommodating is, is when you are in society and you love all that it has to offer, but you love that so much that you're always deferring to others so, so as not to cause any problems and not to be the social outcast or the social misfit, right? You just want to fit in. Isolating is when you don't feel like you fit in and you just hide out in your own little private bubble. Either way, your faith is private and it's all about you and it doesn't bleed out of you anywhere. There's no signs that you're a follower of Jesus. And Jesus commanded us to make followers. He spoke of his kingdom, of his way of life. Our role then is to locate ourselves in Christ's kingdom under his rule and his way of life. And in doing that, it means we see the beauty and dignity of all people because all people are created in God's image. We must honor that. But also it means we recognize that there is brokenness and misery in this world that has been brought about by the rebellion against God. And so we live in this tension. We live in this tension of, of, of spreading the good news of the gospel while affirming people's dignity and beauty made in the image of God, and at the same time recognizing the problems, the brokenness, and the misery of sin. And so that gives us good news to offer. There's good news. There is a God. There's a God who's made us, and he loves us. And we're made to be beautiful and dignified people, but the problem is it's not. And we experience all kinds of tension, strife, wars, 
disease, turmoil, brokenness in relationships, greed, lying, hate, all of that as a result of running away from God. And so our job is to speak the truth in love. So the condition is, can be critical. And Jesus is telling this church in Revelation, you're in critical condition. And I hope he's not saying that to us. But lest we just think, no, we're good, fat and happy, life is good, we ought to ask that question of ourselves. And what he does then is he turns and going on to the second part is here is he says, but you can receive the cure and Jesus is the one who offers the cure and provides the cure. Um, and the cure is to repent, to return to the real Jesus who reigns and rules. We're told at the beginning, the first verse of this passage, and at the end of it, in verses 14 and 21, that Jesus is the beginning point of creation, the faithful and true witness to the plan and purposes of God's salvation and his promises. Jesus is accomplishing salvation for us, conquering death, and reigning from the throne of God in heaven. He is the ruler, the king over the universe. He is the king and he isn't giving up his throne, his reign. You can't veto him and you can't impeach him. It doesn't matter if you like him or not. He's there and he's got it. One of the beautiful things about that, one of the freeing things about that, is when we see all the brokenness of the world and all the bad news around us all the time, it can be overwhelming to us and we can just be like, I don't know what to do. While we shouldn't ignore that, that shouldn't be the thing that dominates our life to make us live in worry or fear. May I suggest you think a little bit less about the bad news and a lot more about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What he is coming to do and how he rules over the world? How he reigns? How he calls out his church because he says that those whom he loves, he will discipline and correct? Right? A parent, kids, will correct you. A parent will challenge you. They will say, no, you can't do this. You can't do that. You got to do this. Why do your parents do that? And you say, because they hate me. And that's not true. They don't hate you. Your parents do that because they love you and because they want what is good for you in life. The parent who doesn't do that might be the parent who hates you. The parent who never corrects you, never guides you, never tells you a way to go. It's like, I don't really care enough about you to help shape your life. You just figure it out. But when a parent cares, they will correct, they will discipline, all in love. And what Jesus is saying is that, my church, listen to me, though you may be in critical condition, because I love you, I will discipline and correct you. And he tells them that to say that then, look, turn back to me. Turn back to me. He wants what is best for the church. And so that language of turning back is the word repent, which means turn around, go the other way. That's what it means. And he's saying, repent, come back to me. So much like in the Old Testament where God is calling Israel to turn and come back to him after they've wandered away. Turn, come back to me, repent. Jesus is using that same language. And not only that, but he's using the same language here to tell them how to repent that he said was all their problems. Did you hear that? He says, here's what you should do. Instead of trusting in your own self-sufficiency, you should actually buy the gold from me that is better than any other gold. You should buy clothes that will actually clothe you. And you should acquire the salve for your eyes so that you can see again. He uses the same language, but he says, get it from me. Buy it from me. And you may be saying, hold on a second, buy it? How are we supposed to buy it? Why would we buy it? I thought grace was free, that forgiveness was free. 
Plus, he says they're poor. They got no money to buy. They can't buy anything. True. Precisely the point. Grace is free. You can't buy it. You can't afford it. You have no money to buy what you need. The emphasis here is on acquiring it, though, which must be done. You must acquire what God is offering and get it. The point is you can't afford it. The point is not that it doesn't cost anything. The point is you can't afford it. You see, it does cost. It costs a lot. It costs Jesus his life. Though mercy is unearned, it's costly. It costs Jesus everything. You think I might be stretching that. I'm not. I want to look at a Bible verse in the Old Testament now from the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 1 to 3. Notice what Isaiah, the prophet, is calling to Israel. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Wait, <laughs> got no money, come buy and eat. Jesus is using the same language. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. You hear what he's saying? Come, acquire for me the gold. Acquire for me the wine. Acquire for me the water. Acquire for me the feast. Come buy it for me. Buy it without money and without cost. He's offering them the best, the thing they need most. And he's saying, I am enough and you must come to me to get it. You say, well, how does that work? Well, it works the same way like a, like a gift card does, right? I think I got a gift card in my wallet here. Yeah. Yeah, right here. I got, a, I got a gift card right here to Fest where I can go feast across the street. Gift card to Fest. Does it cost me anything? No. It doesn't cost me anything. Do I have to buy it? Yes. How do I do that? With somebody else's money. This is what Jesus is saying. The way that you get to heaven, the way, the way that you have fellowship with him and have life with him is you have to buy it, but you're buying it with his blood at the cost that he gave of himself to purchase salvation for you. He loaded the gift card with the value and says, here's the gift. Will you take it? And will you use it? And that's what repenting is saying. Okay, God, I, I am not self-sustainable. I don't have everything I need. I need you. I need the gift. And I want to acquire what you've given. He also says to be zealous. He says, be zealous and repent. The cure is to be zealous and and repent. What what does that mean? You know, a sign that you've repented, that you've turned around, is that now your zeal changes. Your, Your desires, your affections are put on something new and different. And he's saying, now you will be zealous for me. The sign that your health has been cured is that you care about the mission of Christ and about the name of Christ. You have a new passion or zeal for it. And that might look different in each person, but it will be there. You will have joy and peace. You will have a new desire to follow in the ways of Jesus and to obey him. You'll have a new desire to somehow figure out how you fit into making disciples of him. You know, you are an influencer. You're all influencers. Some of you are legit social media influencers. Others of you are like, barely social media influencers like me. I post something every week or so and maybe five people see it. I don't know, whatever. But it has influence. Just over five or how many ever. But your influence is at your job where you're selling a product, where you're providing a service and you're influencing, where you're managing a workforce you're influencing. Your influence is in your recreational life as you're playing games and sport and those you're with. You're always influencing somehow. 
And what Jesus is saying is, don't be so ashamed of my name that you won't influence others for me. Be zealous in that way. Don't hide Jesus. Is there a revival going on today? This is a question that's kind of been on the internet, social media, and the news, right? With a revival at Asbury College in their chapel service. They had a, one of the regular chapel services in which um, turned into a two-week-long revival after the sermon about the only way you can actually show the love of God to others is first knowing the love of God. Students didn't leave the chapel and they stayed singing, confessing their sins, reading scripture, and others occasionally getting up to give a word of encouragement or, or preach or the chaplain coming to preach. And then others started coming from out of town all over the place to see what was going on and to experience this. News stations wanted to come and report and they told them to stay away. And many Christians took to social media calling it fake and attention-seeking. Now, we are called in Scripture to test the spirits, to see what is real and what is true. But it's a bit arrogant to prejudge something, say God couldn't be moving in that way. Do we really know that? What if he is? Isn't this, in fact, what we've been praying for? Revival in the land? That God would work and renew and revive people? This is what we want. But true revival of course, isn't just about an experience. It leads to renewed evangelism, to people being converted. It leads to a renewing of society that often spills out into and over into the culture, promoting righteousness and justice for all. That's what revivals do. It often starts with prayer. It really does. So that Lenten thing on Wednesday mornings, hey, come to that. Let's pray for revival. Let's pray that God starts with his people and renews and revives people and that it spills out from there. I was reminded, uh, Pastor David Cassidy posted uh, this reminder. He said, revival often occurs in younger generations. Martin Luther was, his, was in his early 30s when he posted the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. John Calvin was 26 when he wrote his first edition of the Institutes. Jonathan Edwards, New England pastor, part of the Awakenings, was ordained at 23 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was 35 when he preached, I have a dream. Timothy was young when Paul took him under his wing to mentor him as a pastor. So young and old, seek God wholeheartedly, he writes. I pray that this is part of a revival. If you're young, make yourself available to God. Ask him to use you no matter the cost. It's time to rise in open acknowledgement of our weakness and sinfulness and receive the grace God gives that we may fruitfully serve him all of our days. Revival. It could be. I don't know. But we'll see. Because revival starts often in crazy ways that seem to be extraordinary, where the Spirit of God moves and convicts people of their sin, and they do things that don't look normal. But the lasting impact of revival isn't the extraordinary, it's the ordinary. It's that ordinary everyday life gets changed. Ordinary everyday life becomes one in which you are praying, which you are digging and reading your Bible, in which you are working for God's kingdom to come about in the world, where you are gathering his people for worship, growing through prayer and study, and you are going out to make new disciples. That's the fruit of revival. We'll see if that's going to happen. I pray it does. Thursday evening, I got a knock at my door. I wasn't expecting it. It wasn't late, late, but it was dark and later. I was like, nobody ever knocks on our door at this time. What's going on? It's like way past time a package is being delivered. And I was like, um, 
So I make my way to the door, and I was surprised. It was our daughter and son-in-law with their brand new puppy. So I was like, oh, shh, come in, we'll sneak up on Michelle, and you can show her. And, and so she sees the puppy and is like, oh, it's great, and everything. Like, the knock at the door surprised us. We weren't ready for that. Jesus asked that question here in verse 20. He says, I stand at the door and knock. He says, behold. He says, here I am. Behold, look. Look, you blind. Look. Do you see? I'm standing at the door, knocking. Will you let me in? Will you let me in? Open the door. And you may be thinking, how do do I know? How do I know if it's really Jesus knocking? Well, there's an inward thing of that where you feel like there's something different. The Spirit of God is doing something. You're like, I don't know, but I'm feeling this movement within me that I need to do this. But there's also outwardly, you know, how is that? Because the preacher here is telling you and inviting you the same words that Jesus said, open the door and let him in. Maybe it's your friend who's telling you that. Or people who are praying for you. Have, you have outward things around you right now saying, Jesus is here. Will you let him in? And I pray that the inward thing of God's spirit is working in your heart and you're going, yeah, yeah, I really need that. I really do. When you do open that door, Jesus says that you come and you have fellowship with me. He says, open that door and I will come in and dine with you and you with me. That's why those verses at the beginning about lukewarm mean what I think they mean. Because while Jesus on the one hand says, I'm going to vomit you and spit you out of my mouth if you don't repent and come back to me. On the other hand, he says, when you do repent and come back to me, let's eat together. And it's going to be great. And it's going to be glorious. And the food is going to be good. And we will have real fellowship together because we know each other. And we'll eat together. You'll eat with me and I'll eat with you because we're together. That's what he's saying. We do this in a few ways. We have a present fellowship with Christ right now. Those of us who have received him and opened the door and said, yes, Jesus, come in. We have a present fellowship with him where he is with us now by his grace. We celebrate that monthly in the, in the Lord's Supper, too, is another sign of that. It is, it is a communion meal in which we are saying and being reminded that Christ is with us and that we commune, we fellowship with him. And it's a foretaste of that greater meal that Jesus is talking about. I think that greater meal that Luke talks about in Luke chapter 12, and we're going to read a couple of verses here. Before these verses, what happens in this text of Luke 12 is he says, Hey, if you're not ashamed to acknowledge my name on earth, Jesus says, then I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. Don't hide it, right? And then the other thing he says is, before this, he tells the parable of the rich fool who thinks he's got it all and doesn't. And then he says, the Father will provide for you. And then he says these words, you better be ready for when the knock on the door comes. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. This is what he's going to do. He's saying he's going to come back and he's knocking this future day when all will be judged, all will be made right, 
and we will join together in the great feast, the great wedding banquet of the Lamb. So are you in critical condition? Have you repented? Are you zealous for God? Are you ready? Are you going about his work and, and doing what you should be doing, looking forward to his, his return? That feast will be magnificent, and it will be a magnificent feast for all those who know their need of God's mercy and grace, not those who think they are self-sufficient. You may be surprised when you get there who opened the door and got into the banquet. There's a story that reminds me of this story that Jesus tells. It's old. It's 30 or more than 30 years old. It was reported in the Boston Globe in June of 1990. And the story is this, that um, a fiancé and, and, um, and her fiancé went to a um, hotel, the Hyatt Hotel in downtown, to get ready for their wedding reception. They were getting married, and so they go down there, and they pick out all the fine china that they're going to use, the meal that they're going to have, the flowers, the bouquet, the spread, all that stuff. It's going to be a smash-up, bang-up wedding, and they've got it ready to go. They both had expensive taste, and it was going to be $13,000 in 1990. After leaving a check for half of that as a down payment, they left. They went home to start looking through wedding booklets about uh, invitations to send out. And as the day came, weeks and weeks later, um, to send out the invitations, the, the groom-to-be... Uh, says this is a big commitment I'm just not sure he got cold feet and bailed out on her his angry fiance was hurt obviously and returns to the Hyatt Hotel to cancel the banquet the events manager meets her there and says um, I'm so understanding because the same thing happened to me my engagement was broken off but she said, it, but as to the contract, it's a contract and I can't change it. The most you can do is get $1,300 back or you can go ahead with the party. The woman thought about it and it seemed crazy, but the more she thought about it, she liked the idea of going ahead with a party because you see, 10 years before, she had been homeless and on the streets and people helped her out and she was able to get back on her feet and, and have a good career and, and um, and have money. So she decided she was going to throw a big blowout party. She was going to throw a big blowout party, but she was going to invite people from homeless shelters, retirement homes, all kinds of different places who would otherwise never come to the downtown Hyatt in Boston for such a party. She changed the menu, serving boneless chicken in honor of the groom. <laughs> took, took a second. That's what the article says. sent the invitations, and people showed up. That warm summer night, the Globe reports, people who are used to peeling half-gnawed pizza off the cardboard dined instead on chicken cordon bleu. Hyatt waiters in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to people propped up by crutches and aluminum walkers. Bag ladies, vagrants, and addicts took one night off from the hard life on sidewalks outside and instead sipped champagne, ate chocolate wedding cake, and danced to big band melodies late into the night. What a beautiful picture. In heaven, the wedding banquet that the groom Christ is going to throw for his bride will be glorious and beautiful. And those who are gathered, there won't be those who all thought they had it together and were self-sufficient. It'll be all those who know and were not ashamed of the mercy they needed in Jesus Christ. You see, 
We're all just beggars. But we know where to get bread. Who has the living bread? The bread of Christ. Will you be there? If you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, I want to invite you to do that today. Make today the day where you open the door. Say, okay, Jesus, I'm in. If you want to do that, in, that, in the chairs in front of you, the monthly bulletin, on the bottom of that monthly bulletin, there are prayers. There's a prayer of salvation down there, a prayer for those struggling. So just pull that out and look at that right now. You can all pull it out. Everybody put, pull it out and look at it. You can look at it. You can pray it while I pray. You can take it home with you and think about it and meditate on it. But don't do nothing. Because he's knocking. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray. I pray that you would do a mighty work of renewal and revival in our land, in our country, on earth, in our church right here at Spring Run. Lord, I pray for any who may be feeling like you are knocking at the door of their life, that you will help them to admit that they aren't self-sufficient, that they're weaker and more sinful than ever believed. But the good news is that they can be more loved than they ever dreamed possible. So Lord, would you reassure them today that their debt is satisfied, that your gift card is good, that you take away sins, and that you give us a new life. Lord, help each of us to walk in newness of life. Even those who have known you for 50 years, would you help us to walk in newness of life, to be about following you in obedience and being on your mission. We ask this in Jesus' name.